Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. This is True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Week by week, you'll hear the true stories behind the operations that have shaped the world we live in. True Spies. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. It was really kind of cute because every mission brief, when he'd brief his crew, he'd end it by going, protect the goddamn boat and you'll protect your own ass. That was his signature sign-off. I'm Sofia DiMartino, and this is True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Celebrity Spies, part two. The most beautiful man in the movies. This mission was described by one of his sailors years after the war. It says they were taking gold shipments actually to Yugoslavia to sort of use almost as payment to Tito for rescuing American airmen. It almost sounds like a little bit of a bribe, whatever. And on their way back, they were attacked by uh, German aircraft, mainly German e-boats, if you will. The year is 1943, and World War II is raging. Following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the Americans have entered the war. But the German onslaught on the free world remains ferocious. Allied support missions for local resistance across strategic European locations are in full force. It's like a PT boat, you know, a version of an American patrol torpedo boat, you know, like about a 70-footer, heavily uh, armed, if you will, and very fast. And so Sterling had to maneuver out of the way, and on this particular mission, he had picked up four American airmen, two of which were seriously wounded. At the forefront of these attempts to disrupt the German advance are the British Special Operations Executive, or SOE, and the recently formed U.S. Intelligence Service known as the OSS. And on the way back, they got attacked. They got attacked by the Germans and fought their way out. When they were pulling up there, they sent two flares up to indicate, look, we need an ambulance because we got seriously wounded. And as they're approaching the harbor, they notice that uh, there's an ambulance because way back there and there's a Red Cross van there and there's a big crowd. And as they get closer, they see there's a beautiful woman dressed in a Red Cross outfit. And uh, as they get closer, they say, oh my God, that's Madeline Carroll. One of the critical missions performed by these intelligence services was working with local resistance movements in running supplies, rescuing wounded military personnel and transporting refugees to safety from what was then known as Yugoslavia, across the Adriatic to the southern heel of Italy. These missions required highly skilled sailors capable of navigating under cover of night with the constant threat of attack by the Nazis' naval forces. As a consequence, they also required unparalleled levels of courage, competence and determination to pull them off. So why then? was one of the most famous and celebrated Hollywood actresses in the world waiting on the pier for the return of one such mission. More importantly, who was she waiting for? The man she was there to greet was none other than her husband, and this week's true spy, the Hollywood heartthrob Sterling Hayden. A six-foot-four hunk dubbed by Paramount Studios' publicity team 
as the most beautiful man in the movies. Yet he'd thrown it all away to serve in the OSS, forerunner to the CIA, in the Allied effort to bring an end to Hitler's murderous onslaught on European freedom. But, as we shall find out, the German Navy wasn't the only danger Hayden was to face. The simmering rivalry between US and British intelligence was about to blow up into a life-or-death showdown, with our true spy at the centre of it. Our guide through this star-studded tale is Hayden's biographer and retired US Navy physician, Lee Mandel. Hayden was livid, you know, he gets off the boat and what was happening was they wanted to do a publicity thing because Madeline had volunteered, you know, as a Red Cross volunteer and was only about 50 miles north of the base. So they brought her down there. Well, Hayden was in no mood after what they went through, started cursing at her and drove her away. And he checked his men aboard, made sure they were taken care of, inspected the boat. Then he went up to the guy who was the public affairs officer for the 15th Air Force who had arranged this whole thing, went up to him. And when the guy tried to speak to Sterling, Sterling grabbed him by his shirt and threw him into the harbor. Not perhaps the reaction anyone expected, least of all Hayden's famous wife. But by 1943, Sterling Hayden had rejected fame and fortune to volunteer for the Marines. In a matter of months, he had been assigned to Operation Audrey, the OSS's mission to disrupt the German war effort in the Adriatic. He had changed his name to John Hamilton and returned to what he loved most of all, sailing. And in doing so, he was becoming one of the most unusual, fascinating and courageous figures to emerge from Hollywood. A man whose life more resembled a character from a Hemingway novel than a real person. To understand why this Hollywood actor was now commanding a boat aiding the communist rebels, we need to go back to the beginning. To a young boy who fell in love with the ocean and spent the rest of his life trying to find freedom on the open seas. A freedom that, for the most part, eluded him and drove him to the brink of his sanity. How this wanderlust also led him to become a star witness in Senator Joseph McCarthy's witch hunt to root out communism in the entertainment industry. A decision he regretted for the rest of his life. Sterling Hayden's childhood was tough from the start. Born in New Jersey in 1916, his formative years were shaped by an abusive father. When he died of a heart attack on the brink of another vicious beating, Sterling's mother remarried to a con man called Jim Hayden. And he was a ne'er-do-well, a schemer, kind of a get-rich-quick guy. Sterling despised Jim, but the con man's itinerant lifestyle made its mark on the boy nonetheless. During a trip to New York, the young Sterling met his first and deepest love. They get to the piers in New Jersey, and for the first time, Sterling sort of sees the water, if you will, and he was enraptured. He said, my God, this is the most beautiful stuff I've ever seen. And from that point on, he was almost like addicted to his vision of a life at sea. Despite the challenges of his early years, Hayden's life possessed a certain charm. By chance, coincidence, and sheer luck, he encountered a handful of surrogate father figures and mentors throughout his youth. One was Warwick Tompkins. Warwick Tompkins was an intellectual who actually became a communist and became a strong influence in Sterling's life. And Sterling was getting 
many uh, books and news articles and letters from Tompkins throughout the war and affected his thinking. The other mentor, he had two others. One was a guy named uh, Lincoln Concord. Concord was a former socialist, if you will, when he was a young man, became a conservative, was hard-drinking, an adventurer, and he wanted to open Sterling up to the adventures of life. And then the other one was Irving Johnson. Irving Johnson hired Sterling after um, he met him to be his first mate on his round-the-world cruise. And from Irving Johnson, he learned seamanship extraordinaire, if you will, and responsibility. Uh, Johnson was a teetotaler, fiscally responsible. And it's interesting, you know, here he had these two mentors. Concord, on one hand, was a bit of a wild man. And Irving Johnson, who was the kind of laid-back, conservative-type guy. It was this trio of father figures that helped shape the young Sterling into the man he would become. A sailor of exceptional skill and dedication to his crew, prone to introspection, self-destruction, and addiction. At 16, Hayden takes his first sailing trip from Connecticut to California. And the very first time he spent a night on a sailing ship, which is a decrepit old ship in New England, he was thinking, this is wonderful. This is what I've dreamed about. I mean, he really was somewhat obsessed. Hayden was a quick learner and soon earned a reputation for seamanship, a reputation cemented when he crewed on his first round-the-world voyage. And then, just as he'd settled into a life at sea, young Hayden's story took its next unexpected turn. By the time he was a late teenager, he was six foot five, about 220 pounds of muscle, and handsome as all get out. And in the international fisherman competition off of Gloucester, these sailing boat races, the news media noticed him, and they kept saying, this Viking god who's, you know, a sailor on the ship, and the young ladies really would flock up to the pier just to get a good look at him. Sensing an opportunity, one of Hayden's friends with connections in Hollywood convinced the young sailor to contact a talent agent with a view to doing a screen test. Hayden, at first resistant, but also completely broke, finally agreed. The Hollywood moguls took one look at Hayden and in a matter of months, catapulted him to top billing. He became the hottest name in Hollywood. Described by one magazine as the greatest find since Clark Gable. But right from the start, Hayden's relationship with stardom and the massive salary he was now earning sat uneasily with this romantic dreamer. His dressing room at the studio was adorned with pictures of sailing boats, and he would escape to the sea whenever he had the chance. Next thing he knows, he's starring in two major movies, including with a woman who was the number one box office star of that era, Madeline Carroll. Unbelievable, she can't make this stuff up. His first film role in 1940s Virginia introduced him to his co-star and future wife, Madeline Carroll. The same woman he was to turn his back on two years later, on that fateful day at the docks in Italy. Carol, English by birth, was one of the biggest stars in the world at the time. Despite her being 10 years his senior and already divorced, she and Hayden quickly fell in love. But it wasn't their stardom or good looks that brought them close together. It was their mutual disdain for the whole Hollywood circus that united them. Carol had already donated a French chateau she owned to be an orphanage for victims of the German occupation. Spurred on by the need to do something more to help the war effort, 
she was soon to abandon her own extraordinary career and head to Europe to join the Red Cross. The youthful, insecure Hayden, driven by the desire to prove himself to Madeline and earn her hand in marriage, met with his studio bosses and severed his own lucrative contract. He was going to follow his love across the Atlantic and into action. However, there was an obstacle Hayden hadn't quite considered before he made the move into military life, his newfound superstardom. When he got to Paris Island his first day in the Marine Corps, everyone knew who he was because he was a famous movie star. And of course they started, you know, you're not getting any slack here, mister, that kind of stuff. So with Madeleine's help, Hayden changed his name to John Hamilton. And throughout the war, all the documents that discuss him, he was John Hamilton. And yet everyone knew who he was when he was uh, running the boats in Operation Audrey. I mean, his crew, they knew he was Sterling Hayden. But what will be to them if they refer to him as Hayden? They had to call him Hamilton. By this time, Hayden and Carol had tied the knot, although for the most part had managed to keep the news out of the gossip columns. It's here we need to introduce another pivotal figure in Hayden's life, one who would go on to further shape his destiny. We're talking about General William Wild Bill Donovan, as he was referred to, who was appointed as the first head of the clandestine agency in the United States by President Roosevelt. And uh, Sterling knew him because in 1937, 38, when he was on his round-the-world trip, one of the people on the trip with Irving Johnson was David Donovan, who's uh, Wild Bill's son, and Sterling became good friends with him. And this is back in 1941 when he walked out on Hollywood and asked if he can get him into commando training. You know, the United States didn't have any such organization as this. And they sent him to Scotland for three months where he trained as a commando, including parachute training. Wild Bill Donovan's methods were unorthodox. And this appealed to Hayden, whose own suspicion of authority and convention were now ingrained. Which, perhaps surprisingly, made him in turn an attractive recruit for Donovan's OSS. Sterling was a master sailor, he spoke French, he was physically adept, but I think both were looking for kind of the out-of-the-box thinkers, if you will, of which Sterling definitely was. And it also brought Hayden, once again, into contact with socialist ideology first introduced to him by his friend Warwick Tompkins. In fact, after the war, when they studied the records, I think there were 25 people in the OSS who were actually communists, you know, card-carrying communists. But Donovan had the same philosophy as uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Churchill said, I don't care what people's beliefs are, if they're willing to kill more Germans than Nazis, that's all I care about. Hayden's emerging political sensibilities, honed by his immersion amongst tough, hard-working seafaring types, was to be further sharpened by two significant factors in the coming months of his service. The first was his exposure to the partisan rebels in Yugoslavia, where Donovan eventually posted him in 1943. The other, as we'll come to see, was the simmering rivalry between British and US intelligence forces in the region. When the uh, Axis powers took over Yugoslavia, they put uh, in Serbia, the Germans occupied that, and in the Croatia part, they put the Ustasha, which was a Nazi-like organization, and the man who the uh, Allies thought would lead to the victory was this guy named uh, Mihailovic, 
Draza Mihailovich, who led a group called the Chetniks. And they were the freedom fighters. And originally, the British and the Americans sided with him. But the more that they watched the progress of the war, the people out of the Croatian side, led by Tito, was his nom de guerre, Joseph Braz, were the ones who were actually doing the fighting and killing the Nazis and all that. The British SOE had overall jurisdiction in the Balkans. Any operations mounted by the Americans required British authorization. And this is where mutual suspicion turned into something more destructive. Sensing an overall resistance to their efforts, and perhaps even an anti-American snobbery, the OSS decide to circumnavigate the SOE and take matters into their own hands. They set up an operation to run supplies and to rescue partisans to the Dalmatian coast of Yugoslavia, and this became known as Operation Audrey. This led to a lot of conflict, too, the way it was set up, because the Americans set it up unauthorized. They were supposed to go through their British senior agency, if you will. They just did not. In fact, the British were totally surprised when they got to Barry, Italy. The Americans were already doing this stuff, you know, unauthorized totally. And it didn't help that the guy who really arranged it was this Louis Ewart, who really <laughs> kind of ran wild. He'd go there saying, I have the authority of General Eisenhower to do this. I have the authority of Admiral Power to take these ships. He really didn't, but he was able to talk his way through there. He really spilt a lot of bad blood between the Americans and the British. He finally got fired. That's just about the time when Sterling entered into Operation Audrey. Hayden was walking into a highly fractured relationship between the two intelligence services. In contrast to this turf war amongst the officer classes, Hayden could not resist the appeal of the down-to-earth, real people he encountered. The dock workers and the Yugoslavian resistance, with their unrelenting courage, their utilitarian masculinity, and their wild songs. In his autobiography, Wanderer, now published by Golden Springs Publishing, Hayden describes these people in vivid detail as he witnessed them attending to a mother and her child, fugitives from the destruction. He writes, Men were clustered around this woman, men he had seen in action maybe three dozen times, men who had carried comrades 15, 20, 30 miles, barely ever pausing up endless stony trails, who thought nothing of infiltrating towns to carve SS throats with long knives. These men burned black, lousy, whispered now, bending tenderly down and touching the shore with horn-fingered hands, making cooing sounds, the sudden tears unheeded, then turned away, wiping their eyes with greasy sleeves, with a clank of battle gear as they got back into the column. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. After the Germans bombed the port in Barry, Operation Audrey is moved down to the smaller port at Monopoly. Hayden is charged with establishing the new base and setting up the operations, whose primary goal was to break the Axis blockade, using requisitioned coastal ships. 
These vessels would make armed reconnaissance missions to determine optimal supply routes to smuggle arms and guerrilla forces into Yugoslavia, and in turn, bring back the wounded for treatment alongside thousands of refugees to relative safety. Over the course of his time as an OSS operative, Hayden would command an armada of 14 schooners, six catchers, and two brigantines. He would be personally responsible for 400 Yugoslav men and women, making over 70 sailings. He had to draw upon every ounce of his skill as a sailor, navigating allied minefields before he could venture into even more treacherous enemy waters, swarming with German boats, hungry for a fight. The expatriate partisans worked 24 hours a day loading ships, unloading casualties and stuff like that. And Sterling was so impressed with the dedication of these people that he had nothing but admiration for the partisans. And of course, he was involved in many of the runs across the Adriatic Sea, which is an 80 nautical mile run, with the missions primarily to bring supplies to the partisans and to offload downed American airmen, casualties, and stuff like that. And this was not easy, I was, never mind just the distance, but the Germans had uh, PT boats that were guarding their patrols. Hayden relished not just the opportunity to sail, whatever the challenges presented by running the blockades again and again, he also relished the immersion in a way of life that was far removed from the frivolous and empty existence that had plagued his time in Hollywood. However, the demons that would come to destroy him were already circling. Heavy drinking had set in, compounded perhaps by the knowledge that his new wife, whom he'd only spent a few weeks with in the entirety of their short marriage, was cheating on him. This, then, is the context behind his behaviour that fateful day on the docks, when the military PR machine made its error in bringing Hayden's now virtually estranged wife to greet him, following a particularly dangerous mission. They'd leave at night, and they'd arrive in the uh, Dalmatian coast and go into hiding and cover the boats up and all that, wait until the next night, unload the supplies and load uh, whatever they were bringing back, wait till the next night and then come back. So all their operations really were done pretty much at night time. Knowing how dangerous these missions were, it comes as no surprise that Hayden was so furious at the intrusion of the crass Hollywood PR machine into the serious and important business of war. But worse was yet to come. Rumors had started to circulate that the British SOE, threatened by the success of the OSS, had started to deliberately take credit for the American efforts, or even worse still, sabotage some of the missions. And they were also allegedly claiming credit for supply drops to the uh, partisans and even to the Chetniks. Supposedly these were American supplies and they were saying, well, these came from the British. The incident involving Madeleine Carroll had alerted people to Hayden's volatility. But soon, the Anglo-American rift would directly impact on his safety and the safety of the people he was responsible for as he embarked on one of his most daring sorties. While US naval records are relatively sketchy about the following incident, we're lucky to have the account of someone who was there, a fellow OSS operative called D. Perry Moran. Moran was interviewed in the late 1980s and described his experience of working under Hayden's command. 
He was uh, one of the crew members who worked for Hayden on several missions and truly admired him. He said, we worshipped him as a leader. He says, we knew never to call him Hayden. <laughs> he says, we always called him Captain Hamilton, but he was intense, he was focused, he had the ability to navigate like no one they'd ever seen, could pick out all these uh, hiding places on the coast. They truly loved him. Moran goes on to paint a picture of a fearless, hard-drinking man with a mercurial temper. He was built like a tree, Moran recalled. He went on to observe the introspective side of his boss, saying Hayden would often go for long periods without talking, always holding his binoculars up to his eyes. Hayden is now deep into Operation Audrey, and once again, running his boat through the German blockade, attempting to return yet more wounded servicemen to safety. But this time, it seemed that Hayden's luck had run out, as they were soon overwhelmed by a ferocious German attack. And they're coming back to, I think, Monopoly on this particular mission when they got attacked by uh, several German patrol boats. And they're really getting shot up and strolling over the open mic, if you will. He's calling for air support from the British. It was a make or break moment. Hayden severely outgunned by the Germans, sustaining considerable damage to his boat. He urgently needed the British to come to his aid, but it was not to be. And to his amazement, they said, sorry, can't do, old chap, and they, they rang off. Whatever beef existed between the two agencies, by any standards, this was a monstrous act of betrayal, and Hayden was incensed. Well, he fought his way out, and he was livid. So as they're approaching the harbor, he sees a British PT boat, and he orders his men to open fire on it. And they say, what? He says, open fire on it. And of course, they were afraid of him. So they fired actually over the PT boat. One actually hit the windscreen and broke it. Needless to say, the British were quick to retaliate. And immediately, a British destroyer, which was in the region, came alongside and said, we're placing you all under arrest. The destroyer escorted Hayden's boat into the base, but Hayden, still incandescent with rage at the British refusal to help, snuck some of his men off to get help from the Americans. And meanwhile, the British destroyers anchored behind them to keep them in there. Well, the seamen who was got off the boat went and they got the American military police. The next thing we know, there's a bunch of Americans with machine guns standing facing the British destroyer. The British still attempted to press charges on Hayden. He and the men who'd remained on the boat were interrogated. And it's here that the loyalty Hayden's leadership inspired kicked in. When they testified, they said, did Captain Hamilton give you the orders to shoot? And they said, no, he didn't. They went to the next crew member. Did Hamilton order you to shoot? No, he didn't. And every one of them swore that he never gave that order. And as uh, Moran said, he took care of us, so we wanted to take care of him. With no testimony to corroborate their story, the British military police dropped the case. While the enmity between the two sides cannot have helped the Allied cause, Operation Audrey was still a stunning success. According to the final report, they ran 155 missions during the lifetime of Operation Audrey. They rescued 20,000 partisan refugees. They also brought in over 200 wounded. And Sterling Hayden, AKA Captain John Hamilton, did not go without recognition for his efforts. 
On July 31, 1946, he was awarded the Silver Star for his contribution to the war. His citation includes the sentence, His conduct reflected great credit upon himself and the United States Armed Forces. So, whatever controversies surrounded his displays of anger at the time, they were soon forgotten in the wake of the unequivocal heroism he displayed on active duty. Hayden's OSS deployment continued after Operation Audrey was disbanded. He was assigned to make supply runs and rescue runs to the Albanian coast. He made 10 runs in about six and a half weeks of activity and then uh, went on leave. And when he came back, he was assigned to the, in the European theater to the first U.S. Army as an intelligence officer. He was assigned to uh, what was called the Air Crew Rescue Unit. And these were OSS members who parachuted into Yugoslavia to rescue airmen and bring them back. But it was here that disillusionment started to set in. The organized communist units were nothing like the partisans for whom he had so much admiration. They were run by commissars, typical communist commissars. He says they were like teenagers telling the military what to do. They had indoctrination. They purposely held up orders and all that, and they were obstructionists. They'd go into villages and they'd take it over, and when the enemy forces attacked, they'd abandon the people and let them fend for themselves. He was totally disgusted. So disgusted that he ended up writing a damning report displaying considerable foresight in predicting that Yugoslavia itself was unlikely to survive in the face of such corruption and internal conflict. You can listen to True Spy's Balkan betrayals for a taste of how things turned out. Then he was assigned to the photographic unit to photograph bases, and then his service ended in uh, December of uh, 1945. While his sympathy for the Yugoslavian resistance was waning, so too was his marriage. In his autobiography, Wanderer, now published by Golden Springs Publishing, the split gets a brief mention. We knew without knowing why, without much discussion, that the marriage had dissolved. What had not dissolved, though, was his fascination with, and increasing sympathy for, the communist cause. Despite seeing firsthand the horror of a committed communist regime in the form of the Yugoslavian commissars, Hayden was soon considering joining the party back home in Los Angeles. And a great deal of this had to do with his old friend and mentor, Warwick Tompkins. You know, it's hard to really put that together. You know, all the time that he was in Italy, he was getting letters, magazines, newspaper clippings from Warwick Tompkins with this uh, basically leftist communist ideology. And I think he believed in the common man and he looked at uh, himself as a common man, if you will, and what can you do to make the world better? Added to this his suspicion for unearned wealth, easy money, and con men in general, no doubt heavily influenced by his stepfather's dogged pursuit of the American dream, it seemed that the introspective Hayden was yearning for a cause he could truly believe in. A cause that had been inspired by hard-working men and women, the sailing crews and Yugoslavs, the kinds of people he wanted to be amongst, to be part of. When he came back, he went back to Connecticut and he actually went to New York and Paramount Pictures signed him again. And it was during this time, 1946, when he joined the Communist Party. But the discreet, elite activities of the Hollywood intelligentsia 
were of little appeal to the war veteran. And he finally quit. He says, I can't get through to this. And he realized that somehow working for longer coffee breaks on a Hollywood set for the crew was not quite the same as working with the partisans on the docks at Barry. It didn't quite strike him as, you know, this is something really noble that I should be doing. So he quit and uh, didn't look back, though it came back to haunt him, certainly. While Hayden was extracting himself from the party, the US was plunging into the grip of what became known as the Red Scare. Following the end of the war, fear was spreading of Soviet agents and Marxist ideology, penetrating the very fabric of American society. And one of the hotspots was the small but dedicated membership of the Communist Party, who had infiltrated the Hollywood studio system. Well, he buys a boat, and in fact, he marries his second wife in, I think, 47, and they live on a boat for like well over a year in the harbor there. He, you know, goes sailing fairly regularly, nothing long distance. But meanwhile, was starting to heat up with the House on Un-American Activities Committee. And with his, albeit brief, membership of the party on his record, Hayden knew that it would only be a matter of time before the infamous HUAC came knocking. He did go to the FBI initially testifying because he knew he may be recalled to the Marine Corps for the Korean conflict. And, you know, you'd have to answer the question, are you now, are you ever a member of the Communist Party? He didn't want to perjure himself. So he went to the FBI, they took testimony, but it wasn't enough. By this time, his second marriage was also beginning to break down. And he now had children to care for. What the FBI also allegedly warned Hayden was that if he didn't want to lose his children in a custody battle, he would have to name names to HUAC. He was very worried when, you remember the story of the Hollywood 10, the uh, Congress subpoenaed, I think it was 19 people and 10 of them refused to testify. They became known as the Hollywood 10. All of them were screenwriters and uh, directors. And to counter this, Sterling Hayden, Danny Kaye, John Huston, they went to uh, Washington to sit in on the hearings to show their support for the Hollywood 10. It backfired totally on them for a number of reasons. But uh, they were shocked when they later found that Sterling Hayden, who was part of their committee, was actually a member of the Communist Party. With no way out, Hayden knew he had to testify. The Hollywood 10 were convicted of obstruction of Congress sentenced up to a year in prison and fined $1,000, but it had to work through the appeals, and finally in 1951, the Supreme Court turned down their appeal. So the sentences were executed, and they restarted the hearings, and Hayden was one of them who was subpoenaed to appear. From the transcripts of these hearings, it's obvious that they were as much for show as finding out any new information. They already knew the names. I thought that was very interesting. They knew exactly who was members of the Communists, but who wasn't. But what they wanted, and this is what Sterling provided them, they wanted to come out of the mouth of a celebrity. They wanted to come out of the mouth of an insider. And top of Hayden's list, his old friend, Warwick Tompkins. And when he was done, Sterling said in his own book, I was a, a real daddy of a long-legged worm crawling on the earth. He never forgave himself for his testimony, yet his career flourished after that. That his career indeed flourished is beyond doubt. A string of appearances in what are now considered classic films followed right into the 1970s. But all the while, the demons who had pursued him from an early age only multiplied in number. 
Tompkins worked for the L.A. school board as a filmmaker, so he got fired after that. And Sterling would always send his family money for the rest of his life because he felt so bad about what he did. And interestingly, when he wrote his first book, Wanderer, he dedicated it to Warwick Tompkins. For the rest of his life, Hayden was plagued with financial difficulties and his love-hate relationship with his acting career. And always the lure of the sea, open water and the freedom of body and spirit he was incapable of feeling on dry land. Then, one day, he came up with a plan to escape for good. After he and his wife Betty Ann got divorced, he actually got custody of the children, which was a tribute to how good a father he was. He really worked at it. And he had a plan to take his uh, schooner wanderer and take the kids with him and go to Scandinavia and do sort of a Swiss Family Robinson type of thing. And he got financing uh, from a movie production company. Then his wife got an injunction from a federal judge saying he could not take the children because the ship was unsafe, which it really wasn't. Hayden's deep disdain for authority remained undiminished. So he had a volunteer crew that he recruited from around the country. And they went out to take the kids to Santa Barbara. And unbeknownst to the crew, they anchored there and they said, guess what, change of plans, we're going to Tahiti. But he became actually a fugitive from American justice by technically kidnapping his own kids. And they stayed in Tahiti for almost a year. Eventually, with no money left in the bank, Hayden was forced to return to the US and face the consequences of his actions. But the judge was a big admirer of him and basically let him off with a suspended sentence and a slap on the wrist. Hayden's legacy as an OSS operative remains as important and meaningful, but far less celebrated as anything he committed to celluloid. Perhaps as Wild Bill Donovan sensed, recruits for these dangerous missions needed to be drawn from unexpected, unconventional places to carry out these extraordinary deeds. They needed to be outsiders, outliers, capable of acts of courage far beyond those expected of ordinary people. But such heroism and obsessive dedication comes at a price. Once an outsider, it seems, always an outsider. I think his service in the Balkans was incredible. And the respect he earned from his men, uh, you know, it's dollars and cents, if you will. Uh, I really think he committed to the war. He committed to the good of the common man. And I think that was part of his conflict. And uh, he was an extraordinary man. But it's funny, I think he was an extraordinary man trying to be an ordinary man, in a sense. And uh, just didn't fit. Just didn't fit. Despite the drugs and the drink, Sterling Hayden lived a long life dying of cancer in May of 1986. A rebel to the very end. He got arrested at, I think it was Toronto Airport in 1981 because he had hashish in his possession. And they let him off basically with a slap on the wrist. And when the judge was asked why, he said, look, this was an unusual judgment for an unusual man. I thought that was kind of an interesting comment. Lee Mandel's biography of this week's true spy, Sterling Hayden's Wars, was written with unparalleled access to Hayden's war records and the blessing of Kitty, his widow. It's a fantastic read and is available to buy from all good bookstores. I'm Sophia DiMartino. Join us next week for part three of our Celebrity Spies trilogy.
we're off to Paris and the extraordinary story of Josephine Baker, the most famous entertainer of her day and daring member of the French Resistance. Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis.